Welcome to The Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. In one of Chicago's many museums, there's a small leather pouch under glass, open, with vials of pills that you can see inside. Next to it, instead of a label, is a book. The museum is what remains of the vast Hull House Association that operated for a century in the immigrant communities that sprang up along Halstead Street. Italians, Greeks, Germans, and Jews, among many others, easing their transition agitating for better understanding, ameliorating the harsh conditions recent arrivals found. The leather pouch full of pills is what remains of Jane Addams, who founded Hull House, among a few other scattered artifacts. Though she devoted her life to the project of bringing people from every class and origin together for mutual benefit, rooting her forever in Hull House in Chicago, her work nonetheless carried her all over the world, and has its inspiration in her travels. The leather pouch went with. The book next to the leather pouch is what remains of author Terry Capsalis's research into the meaning of this object, part of the Whole House Museum's alternative labeling project, inviting us to a slow museum experience. This is episode 36, Travel Medicine Kit, Madrid, where Jane saw a bullfight. Well, I'm curious, do you get any responses to this book? Have people reached out before? Hmm. Maybe not total strangers. I mean, I've gotten, I actually did have a great experience once. I was at the Hull House for an event, sitting next to this woman who I was introduced to, who was an Argentinian filmmaker. And she started telling me about the book. She said, oh, if you haven't had a chance, you have to go up in Jane Addams' bedroom and sit with this book. It's an amazing experience, and there's one line in it. And then she recalled a line, which now I can't remember. And I thought, this is like the best thing in the world, to have somebody sit and tell you you have to read your own work. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's pure dream. I mean... Uh, so can you describe your impressions of Hull House? H- had you gone there much before this project? Uh, was yes. it something on your radar? It, um, it was something on my radar for years before I ever really dug in. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think probably like a lot of people that grow up in Chicago, they hear about Jane Addams, Jane Addams, Jane Addams. Mm-hmm. They know they're supposed to know who she is mm-hmm. and may not. Yeah. So, um, and then I had a friend who, um, uh, applied to be the director and I watched her through the process of really kind of inundating herself, um, with Jane Addams material. Her name's Lisa Lee. She's a very dynamic, amazing scholar and activist. And she started reading all this Jane Addams material, and she kept saying to me, oh my God, this woman is amazing. I had no idea, you know, just reading all this stuff. And I thought, wow, i got to really get into this. 
And Lisa took over the museum and really kind of brought it to life. Um, she completely shifted what they were doing there, really with the lens of if Jane Addams were around, mm. how, what would she do? Mm. What would she be thinking about? What would she be focused on? Um, and she just started doing amazing programming. One of the kind of standout things that she did was a weekly soup kitchen yeah. um, for soup and conversation. And they would make huge pots of soup for the community. And then they would really have discussions or lectures um, regarding food activism and agriculture and labor politics. And um, it was beautiful. And I started going to the weekly soups and um, completely in enjoying myself. Um, I went to see Grace Lee Boggs um, when she was 96, uh, the incredible Detroit-based activist who has since died. Um, I saw her give a lecture there. I mean, they were just having incredible speakers and amazing people coming through in the dining hall, you know, where um, W.E.B. Du Bois and Upton Sinclair and Ida B. Wells and all these people would sit and you know, um, ha eat and have conversation. Yeah. So it was incredibly inspiring. Um, and all along, Lisa kept saying to me, I want you to do something at the museum, but I'm not sure what. And she, you know, she kept <laughs> thinking about it, maybe this and maybe that, and nothing ever clicked. And then she started this alternative labeling project. With are there others apart from what you've done? Yeah, there's a poem... Um, that was there, and I don't. I, I think it is still there. By I want to say his name is Louis Rodriguez, um, activist, uh, LA-based poet, and um, uh, who's also worked with LA gangs, gang members. Um, really amazing guy. He did a poem as an alternative label. And then I know there were plans for others to happen and I'm not sure they ever did. Yeah. Um, but then she found the kit yeah. or saw the kit and thought, well, that's, that's what we need. That's, we need an alternative label for the kit. So she's the, she was the genesis of that idea. She was the genesis yeah. of the idea, which I really see is almost half the project. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, right? Yeah. I mean, you look at this book, uh, I encountered it in the museum in Jane's bedroom next to the object and was just fascinated, couldn't believe it, and ended up buying it. But then, yeah, it makes you question, you're dying to know who comes up with that, you know? Who is it that plucked that artifact out and why? And so, interesting. And she plucked it out because I have a long history writing about medicine and culture and gender. Okay. And um, yeah, I was going to ask why you, yeah, other than friendship, what, right. what was it that drew her to you? Right. So um, yeah, so this is so I'm a writer, and then also um, I had at this point I had finished a book um, called The Hysterical Alphabet, 
which was written like a Victorian alphabet book mm. um, based on primary medical writings about the diagnosis of hysteria from ancient Egypt to the present. Wow. So it's like a chronology that goes starts in A in ancient Egypt and goes through the present, 1950s really, through yeah. Z, yeah. and kind of covers the whole um, diagnosis, that 4,000-year diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and... So she and she had loved that project, which also had a performance element to it. Um, so she was thinking of something performance-wise. She knew there should be a medicine component, etc. And then I think when she saw the kit, um, she said, "Okay, this is it." And at first she said to me, "So you could just do something like we could have a notebook in Jane Addams' room, and whenever you think of something, you could just kind of write it in the notebook." And I thought, okay, she knows me, but she doesn't really know me well, because I would never, ever do that. I'm this incredibly slow, incredibly meticulous, you know, yeah. writer. Yeah. I'm not like, oh, you know, live blogger yeah. in Jane Addams' bedroom. Yeah. It was right. not going to happen. <laughs> so well, I said, <laughs> it's interesting you say that because the book comes across as notes that are very meticulously crafted as a very writerly too you yeah. know so it's interesting it ended up having both those uh, forms well and that in the process of writing it um, I really did write it for myself as a series of notes and yeah. I wasn't sure how um, those would be related um, so what I ended up with was pages and pages and pages of these small um, sections. And at one point, I just took the scissors out, cut them all apart on this table, arranged them all, and started coming up with clumps. Um, and then that turned into the book, which also, to me, made a lot of sense because if you think about the museum label mm -hmm. as a kind of short amount of text... Yeah. In a way, I think of any of these as, like, could you almost just pluck out one and use it as a label Yeah. for the kit, right? Yeah, yeah. But you also kind of uh, play with the idea of a label. There's, there, there's an edginess to the, each of these pages that uh, breaks into your consciousness and reminds you that this is not a traditional label. Right. That seems very intentional. But before we get too far into that, I'm wondering if you could just describe the travel medicine kit for sure. the audience. Right. Give them a tactile picture yeah. of what we're talking about. It's about a four-inch square leather kit um, that has four vials in it. And um, two of the vials had black pills one vial has, I should say in the present tense, two vials have black pills, one vial has brown pills, and um, one vial has white powder. I think I got that right. Um, and they knew that this was a kit Jane Addams would have taken with her when she traveled. So it wasn't a medicine kit in the sense that she was a physician treating other people. Mm -hmm. It was for her own use when she would travel, but they didn't really know what period it was from. They didn't know anything about what was in the kit. There were no labels on the vials. It had been kept in a dark, controlled climate for decades. Um, and 
one of the first things Lisa and I talked about was, should we find out what's in the kit? And, she, and we both said, no, no, we don't, we don't really need to know what's in the kit. You know, no. And I would say, oh, I don't really need to know what's in the kit to write about it. I mean, it's okay that it's a mystery. It's okay that we don't know. And then one of the deans at the school at the time heard that I, it was a friend also and heard that I was doing this project. And she said, you know, we do have a school of pharmacy down the street, and I'm sure they would be totally into this project. And But I kept with the, oh, I don't need to know what's in the kit. And then one day I was like, what? Why, am I, why do I think I don't need to know what's in this kit? Like, this is crazy. So then we ended up contacting the school of pharmacy and uh, some forensic scientists, and then this pharmacist who was an antique medicine specialist ended up getting involved. And then, um, then the piece became part medical mystery, which mm. I think is part of what creates the kind of forward momentum yeah. in it. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious if you can talk about your uh, method at all, your approach, this as this being an object in a museum and, um, yeah. So how did you make this object speak? Like what went into that? What were you looking for other than debating whether to find out what exactly it was, but did, did you study like labeling and, uh, or did you work with the director closely on that? I mean, I was thinking about, I was thinking about what a museum label is, mm -hmm. right? That it's usually this short, didactic, truth-telling thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, I don't want it to be that. Mm -hmm. And so the first place I went was, what about a total piece of fiction? Um, and simultaneously, I was already realizing that... Um, well, I had a couple of surprises that happened when I started doing research. So one of the first things I did was really dig into Jane Addams' health history yeah. and her travel history. Like, those were the two obvious things to me. Like, let me look at where she traveled and wh why she traveled and what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And let me look at um, what her medical history was. And both were fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that really struck me about her medical history, having just written this book, The Hysterical Alphabet, was the fact that um, she and Charlotte Perkins Gilman had both been treated by this famous physician in Philadelphia, um, hysteria or neurasthenia physician, Dr. Uh, Dr. S. Ware Mitchell. And I was blown away because I had done all this I had done all this work on Mitchell and this writing on Mitchell and I was like wait Jane Addams too <laughs> and then I found out that multiple women at the Hull House had been treated by Mitchell yeah or in the Mitchell school of treatment so that was like number one thing that blew my mind when I started looking into her health history then the other thing that was a strange coincidence is that she and Charlotte Perkins Gilman were born in the same year and they died in the same year which I thought was also kind of a weird tap on the shoulder. And then that Charlotte Perkins Gilman had come to Hull House and multiple times and spent time with Adams. And so that was kind of my first imagining when I was thinking about fiction is, 
wow, I wonder if they are ever had a conversation about Mitchell. Yeah. You know, like yeah. what would they have said? So I wrote out a bunch of fiction based on imagined conversations, wow. which actually ended up only being maybe one or two sections, yeah. little tiny bits yeah. in this book. Um, but that was one thing that I found that was incredibly startling. Yeah. And then also how much she had just suffered, like so many people. Well, can you briefly talk about the yellow wallpaper for anyone who doesn't sure. know? I mean, yeah, context, so, she, so people she, understand what you're talking about. Right. And, and Mitchell's treatment, the rest right. cure. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, I mean, Charlotte Perkins Gilman in her day was one of the most prolific poets, essayists, you know, fiction writers, just prolific writer, lecturer. She did the whole lecture circuit, very in demand wrote a really important book called Women in Economics. Um, but what we tend to know her for now um, is this tiny, tiny little short story she wrote called The Yellow Wallpaper. Um, and that story was written basically as a critical response to Eswar Mitchell. Um, that story is fiction. It has some basis in her experience of being put through Mitchell's rest cure. And what Mitchell did, he was um, made large amounts of money by basically taking women who we might now diagnose as having postpartum depression, depression, anxiety disorder, depression, any number of, of kind of mental health challenges or... Um, even things that may not qualify as mental health challenges, but, but create a lot of poets and writers and artists were given this cure. Um, a lot of women who basically did not fit within the kind of molds of that day of what they were supposed to want mm. in terms of domestic life. Mm. Women who n didn't necessarily want to be married and, and pregnant and, and having children um, were given the rest cure. Um, which was a really brutal, brutal cure. And in her diary, Charlotte Perkins Gilman go, Charlotte Perkins Gilman goes into great detail about kind of what a torture this cure was, where basically women were put to bed, told not to move a muscle, um, told never to lift pen or paper again as long as you live, no creative work, um, be fed. Um, I think Gilman used the words fed like a turkey soon to slaughter, you know, just kind of made fat, just like bring them food, um, milk every four hours. So there was like an infantilization to it. Um, often told they should not even leave bed to defecate and urinate. So they had a bedpan. I mean, the, the most torture you could imagine if you were dealing with mental illness, yeah. right? To be yeah. just kind of put in bed, isolated. With, with and, it. Alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Mitchell, I mean, Gilman wrote the yellow wallpaper as protest. And she, there's this beautiful little essay she wrote called Why I Wrote the Yellow Wallpaper, which is about that this was like she was critiquing what she was made to undergo, how the cure is what nearly drove her mad. Yeah. And when she finally rejected Mitchell's instructions... Um, and started working again and writing again, that was what healed her. Yeah. And it wasn't 
um, his cure. So she had been, so I found that very curious because Mitchell had been very, very vocal about what she'd been through, one, and then critiquing what she'd been through. And in Adam's writing, there's no mention. There's like one sentence in her autobiography. (laughs) And we don't even know if, if she actually ever saw Mitchell even it's there's no it's unclear or whether she was just kind of put under his care in some kind of you know the wing where he worked or whatever so it's it's unclear exactly what treatment she was given yeah um but if the stories of the day are any indication it's possible she could have undergone um some version of that treatment yeah um and it's interesting that she never mentions it. And it's interesting that she and Gilman spent a good deal of time together and were quite close. Yeah. And so that set my imagination aflame of like, ooh, what might they have talked about? Yeah. And I think that only, as I said, resulted in one section. Yeah. Uh, so here's the moment where the, the reason that I've come to you becomes clear. Okay. <laughs> because the alternative to the immobile rest cure is the travel cure, which is what this whole podcast is about, just exploring why people are thrust into movement and what they find when yeah. when they do. So can you talk about uh, not just Jane's travel, what you discovered in researching that, but also the context of people telling her <laughs> go travel well know. that's pretty fascinating because yeah. I was talking to a friend about this who's a who's a quite esteemed psychiatrist and she was saying well in Victorian days that was often how women were treated that was the other way mm. so the rest it's fascinating really yeah. the rest cure would have been one kind of common treatment mm-hmm. for women of a certain means mm-hmm. we're, we're talking all about white women of a certain means yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because they were the ones that could give their physicians money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so either they were sent to rest or they were sent to travel. And oftentimes that travel, as it was explained to me by my friend who's a psychiatrist, was about a oftentimes around a nine month or year long journey, hmm. which is really interesting because that's oftentimes the the amount the period it takes to kind of work through an, a a depression episode. Yeah. Interesting. So Interesting. so that's one way to think about the travel. Now Jane Adams' travel though was pretty special. She was not interested in the being a good Victorian lady and seeing the sights and you know having biscuits. Um, <laughs> so she you know when you read about her travels, I mean Toynbee Hall, seeing Toynbee Hall in London was a revelation and it got her mind thinking about, oh, you know, a settlement house. What would that look like? What would I do? Um, This was a time where you had a first generation of white women who had had the opportunity to be, to go to college, to get college degrees. And yet when they were, when they graduated, they were expected to do nothing with it. They were expected to go back home and take care of their parents. And so Jane Addams recognized this need among this generation of women to have meaningful work, to be of use. Yeah. And then also this this these 
communities and cities that maybe these folks could be of use too. But also what I love about Jane Addams is she was not into charity and not into philanthropy. Mm -hmm. She was really into this idea of the mutual exchange. So what would, say, an immigrant community in Chicago have to gain from a a settlement house in a residence hall uh, where all these white, educated women live? And what would these white, educated women have to gain from a mutual exchange with an immigrant community? Yeah. So that was that was the, so that's why Jane Addams' travels are unique, and so you 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 read these things about her kind of resisting the idea of the Victorian woman who needs, you know, adventure or rest yeah. to recover from her um, sadness or her depression, uh, versus this incredibly inspired, um, hungry mind mm-hmm. that's looking for. Um, opportunity uh, in what she's seeing to kind of put puzzle pieces together so that when she returns um, we could say it's the opposite of travel she makes this incredible home right and this home that is surrounded by all these other homes um, and needs in terms of like what does it mean to have a healthy community what does it mean to have a vibrant community Oh, there's garbage everywhere. People are dying from the the horrible um, treatment of what's going on in terms in in garbage in these communities. So she she becomes a garbage inspector. She becomes you know in charge of the, puts herself in charge of the garbage, and like starts taking care of you know. So in a sense, she's really somebody who travels a lot. I mean, she was constantly then once she had Hull House. She was going to peace yeah. international peace conferences and all these different important um, things all over the world. And travel was a really important part of what she did. But I would also argue that home and having that base of of place um, was the thing she kept coming back to. Yeah. You know, and it seems pretty clear that it did come directly out of her travels, and particularly one moment that you mentioned in the book uh and i want to talk about that moment the bullfight oh yeah but also uh i'd like you to tell some more examples from her travels if you if anything is stuck in your mind from your research um if you have any but i also want to as you think about that mention i went to toynbee hall oh yeah and uh I awkwardly introduced myself and what i was doing and as soon as i mentioned jane adams they all gushed. Oh, and so, wow. You know, that's, I haven't encountered that as I've talked about Jane among, you know, my circles. Uh, that's cool. So it's great that, you know, she left her, she left an impression on yeah. that place as much as it made an impression on her. Yeah. But I'm curious, um, what are some of the stereotypical places the Victorian woman would go and ogle that she issued? Boy, you know what? I would have to go back and research that truthfully. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to put you on yeah, the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I mean, I think there was a circuit. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like, it Absolutely. was like, you go to London, you go to Paris, yeah. you go to Spain and see a bullfight. You yeah. go to, you know, I, check it off I'm it. guessing that yeah. it was, that it, it had that feeling um, when I was reading about it. So I was stunned when I read your book and I saw 
she went to a bullfight and and the thought that that would be on the victorian woman's you know route yes such an insanely violent brutal thing totally what were they thinking i mean <laughs> i have no idea i have no idea <laughs> so she mentions it in 20 years of the whole yes. house uh very beautifully, and I may go back and add uh, some. I could actually that. grab it upstairs if well, you want. Well, that would be wonderful. You yeah. want me to do that? Sure. Or I, I have it right here too. Oh yeah, we can um, just read from it. Yeah. Because I think her language is is so great. Yeah. In that. Do you want me to read a couple paragraphs? Please, that would be wonderful. So. It is hard to tell just when the very simple plan, which afterward developed into the settlement, began to form itself in my mind. It may have been even before I went to Europe for the second time, but I gradually became convinced that it would be a good thing to rent a house in a part of the city where many primitive and actual needs are found, in which young women who had been given over to exclusively to study might restore a balance of activity along traditional lines and learn of life from life itself, where they might try out some of the things they had been taught and put truth to the ultimate test of the conduct it dictates or inspires. I do not remember to have mentioned this plan to anyone until we reached Madrid in April 1888. We had been to see a bullfight rendered in the most magnificent Spanish style, where greatly to my surprise and horror, I found that I had seen with comparative indifference five bulls and many more horses killed. The sense that this was the last survival of all the glories of the amphitheater, the illusion that the riders on the comparisoned horses might have been knights of a tournament, or the matador a slightly armed gladiator facing his martyrdom, and all the rest of the obscure yet vivid associations of an historical survive, historic survival had carried me beyond the endurance of any of the rest of the party. I finally met them in the foyer, stern and pale with disapproval of my brutal endurance, and but partially recovered from the faintness and disgust which the spectacle itself had produced upon them. I had no defense to offer to their reproaches, save that I had not thought much about the bloodshed. But in the evening, the natural and inevitable reaction came, and in deep chagrin, I felt myself tried and condemned, not only by this disgusting experience, but by the entire moral situation which it revealed. It was suddenly made quite clear to me that I was lulling my conscience by a dreamer's scheme, that a mere paper reform had become a defense for continued idleness, and that I was making it a raison d'etre for going on indefinitely with study and travel. It is easy to become the dupe of a deferred purpose, of the promise the future can never keep, and I had fallen into the meanest type of self-deception in making myself believe that all this was in preparation for great things to come. Nothing less than the moral reaction following the experience at a bullfight had been able to reveal to me that so far from following in the wake of a chariot of philanthropic fire, I had been tied to the tail of the veriest ox cart of self-seeking. <laughs> I mean, wild. I had forgotten how beautifully written that uh, was, yeah. too. She's <laughs> an amazing writer. But the fact that like that bullfight yeah. woke her up and made her realize, like, time to stop dilly-dallying and, and get this thing started. Yeah. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if, yeah, looking back, she still sees value in that travel, in 
spurring her. You know what I mean? Like, it's a strong sense of remorse that she's expressing yeah. here that really makes her very determined to go back. And you can see the zeal that it would take to build what she built, you know? Yeah. But uh, I wonder if she believes she could have achieved that without having mm. that impetus, you know? Yeah, good question. <laughs> One never knows, right? Yeah. But it did seem to be some kind of weird catalyst, and a lot of people who write about Jane Addams' li- life talk about that bullfight, mm-hmm. as, and she, I mean, because she talks about it, and in very mysterious ways. Yeah. Um, like, what was it about the brutality of that and the spectacle of it that brought that urgency? Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I'm really interested in that I really sticks with me after having done the research in this project is how deeply, deeply committed a pacifist she was. Yes. Um, and a pacifist in, in the sense of in the sense of a Gandhi, in the sense of a Martin Luther King Jr., in the sense of somebody who Um, really saw uh, antagonism beginning at the level of the individual and at the level of an individual's ego. And that, she didn't use that term, but that's how I read it. Um, You know, that any time one brings antagonism into a discussion, it's because of of their, they're they're bringing something of their own um, opinion. It's their own snag that's causing that antagonism, and that is what is going to lead to really big problems and eventually war. Yeah, like war doesn't war starts within individuals, mm-hmm. and then that leads to an antagonism between people, and then that leads to antagonism between peoples. Yeah. Um, so I can't help but think, and again, maybe I'm reading too much into this, that there was something about that display, that spectacle of brutality yeah. um, that somehow triggered like, okay, enough. Yeah. What needs to be done? You know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And you mentioned that in the book in the context of her not saying anything about Mitchell, I think, in contrast to Gilman, that... Jane, you know, recognized that in herself and worked in herself. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you're speculating. It's total uh, speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Complete. Again, this is, you know, this is not a total work of nonfiction. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm absolutely imagining through her, through words of hers that I read, um, I'm very interested in this antagonism idea. So I was looking for ways that it might have appeared um, in surprising places. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would expect her to be antagonistic toward him and there's a silence there and that speaks. Right. Can we read that silence? Which I think is very, very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. So she worked to live out this idea in the context of a very mixed, diverse community of immigrants in Chicago, uh, many Italians, Greeks, uh, Greek town still exists, kind of in form, 
next yeah. next to whole house. Kind of close by. Not much else since the school no. tore it down. But school uh, tore everything down. You mention in the book uh, that these people were travelers, international mm-hmm. travelers. So did you get the sense in researching that she looked at them in that way, like as travelers? What was that? I'm I'm curious how her own travels may have informed the way she looked at the community that she was working in. That's a really good question. Um, I'm guessing that, and again, I'd have to go back and look at the at her writings, but that the Victorian lady touring Europe in a large herd, yeah. <laughs> right, which is what they did, a large herd yeah. traveling around Europe, that there wasn't actually much interaction, yeah. right, with the people of those countries, yeah. perhaps, yeah. or only certain people of those countries. Yeah. Um, so I would imagine if anything, again, we could maybe go back to the bullfight, if anything, it was a realization of what she didn't want. You know, that she wanted to have interactions with people. And my referring to those immigrants as international travelers is a, in a way, a kind of political move to say, like, we don't usually talk about immigrants as travelers, right? We think of it as not being out of choice. Um, whereas the whereas in the Jane side of things, you know, that was about privilege and choice. And, oh, I think I'll go here and I'll go there. And yet these immigrants, particularly in this community where she lived, which was one of the most poor and destitute areas, those were, those were you know, those people didn't have many choices. So mm-hmm. in a sense, I was, through that use of language, I was in a sense, pointing out the disparity, yeah. right? And that probably the rhetorical, you know, I, I asked, did those international travelers have their own travel medicine kits? Yeah. And the rhetorical answer is probably no. Yeah. Probably they didn't. I mean, maybe they had some good herbs with them. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah, the means to um, soften the, the hardship of travel. But they probably did not have, yeah. you know, a kit with vials and, right. and compounded hand-rolled medicines. Yeah, yeah. Maybe now is a good time to quickly reveal the the ending of the book to spoil oh, it. Or everybody I don't know if you always want to, but... wants to know what was in the. Me- <laughs> yeah, that was the thing when I was lecturing about this. Oftentimes, I would leave that out, and of course, the first hand would go up. Yeah. What was in the kits? We what can, was in the kit? We can leave it unsaid no, to make people can, read it. Uh, we can absolutely. <laughs> but it connects to what we're talking about right now. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, so that was one of the things was as when I did realize, oh, yeah, damn, I need to know what's in the kit, um, there was all kinds of speculation. Like, yeah. well, is it were those medicines to treat her ailments? You know, maybe this was a medicine um, related to something that happened in her life that was for her. And... Um, you know, so it was it was fun to have conversations with people like, well, what is what would be in the kit? Yeah. Um, and everybody, you know, wanted to speculate about like how specific these medicines might be in terms of tailored towards her. Yeah. And so then to find out that they were, in a sense, very very common medicines of the day, right? So for stomach upset, for um, constipation, for um, you know, basically those those kinds of things um, get things moving. 
um, you know, could have seemed really anticlimactic. Right. But then to find out that the active ingredient in the pills um, was strychnine um, was, I mean, the, the forensic specialists, you can imagine, were just like, beside themselves excited <laughs> and so was the antique pharmacist he was like great you know because strychnine is you know we know what it is right, it's right. this horrifying poison yeah but pre-1940 was used in small doses um to do these very things yeah so in a sense they were the most common of medicines and in the sense and in another sense they were extraordinary yeah. in terms of how we might think of them now and that to me had some kind of poetic um, uh, thread that needed to kind of be played out. So that that idea of kind of very common and ordinary but very poisonous um, kind of comes out in when I'm talking about how Jane Addams was ostracized um, around World War One, mm-hmm. um, which you know here was a woman, and this is what we see when we visit her bedroom at the Hull House. Um, they have her uh, Nobel Peace Prize medal sitting next to her FBI file, yeah. which is very thick. So, you know, at one time, Jane Addams is considered the most dangerous woman in America. Mm-hmm. Um, and then not too long after that, she wins the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> yeah. So something about, you know, ostracism and poison and... Um, how quickly that can enter a culture or a society and how people can be ostracized and um, made the villain um, but then on the other hand also be this incredibly um, amazing, brilliant, vital, um, productive human being. Yeah. Um, there's some way in which uh, that all made sense. Yeah. You did it beautifully I, I have to say oh, it comes you. together so subtly and perfectly it's such a powerful read um, after 20 years at Whole House it concentrates and it illuminated things in a brand new way for me it just totally invigorated me as I read it I think I devoured it on the ride the blue line you know yeah <laughs> It's a quick read. I mean, the idea was, so part of what the idea of this project was related to was in the museum, how to create a slow museum experience, right? So how do you not, we're so, right, we're so fast food, fast everything, fast museum, like, got it, got it, got it, look, 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 done. Um, So part of the invitation of this is is how to actually sit in Jane Addams' room to um, have this book, have that object, have this quiet space to actually read this. So it can be read in about 20 minutes if you're reading pretty quickly. Um, When they first had it, you could actually make an appointment to sit and have tea. So then they would serve you tea on some of the original Hull House, or maybe not original, a little later, like 1950s or 60s Hull House, um, China. And you would be served tea, and you could sit in Jane Addams' bedroom and read the book and look at the kit and, and have tea. So that was part of the idea, mission of it, was yeah. to have enough heft, you know, that it would create a substantial, meaningful experience Absolutely. that would slow people down a little bit. Yeah. 
Would you be willing to read sure. some from the book? Do you have a particular section in mind? Uh, or do you not care? Any. I, I was hoping you would uh, highlight. Yeah. As you can see, every other page is full. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, should ex I should make sure you know one of the things I love about the book design. That's the interior of the pill. Right, wow. the marble. Wow. <laughs> so that's one of the things she describes as like the granite uh, marble, marbling of a granite countertop. Yeah. That's that description. So you've got that on both sides. Can, yeah. Can you talk about the design? It is very striking and beautiful. Yeah. So there's a wonderful. And also the, the typeface and yes. all that. My my father's a graphic designer, and oh, he's yeah. instantly drawn to that and trying to piece it together. <laughs> so there's a there's a kind of award-winning um, design team in Chicago called Sonnenzimmer. Okay. Um, and they did this. And uh, yeah, I think the font is kind of amazing. I don't think they created it. I actually think it was a found font. Um, and I gave, we gave them the images from the microscope. So mm -hmm. that's the close-up of the pills mm -hmm. um, and as I said the interior is the marbling um, and then I really wanted it to have space which is why you know they did the kind of green white green white kind of to slow you down a little bit yeah um, but I love I loved I loved what they did yeah I mean they they did really a fantastic job couldn't have asked for more. How many times have you uh, published a book? Um, this is my third book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it seems, I mean, it's such a unique opportunity. Not every writer gets to have such a well-designed oh, book. Oh, I know. Like yeah, this. no, I'm, I've been, actually, I've really been lucky. All three of my books are incredibly designed. Yeah. I'm really, really lucky. Um... So I have three sections that I that I just gave a tour the Sunday before the election. I was asked by the feminist group called Maverick at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago to meet them at the Hull House and talk with them about this project and talk with them about Jane Addams. And um, it was really a memorable visit. And we all sat on the floor in Jane Addams' bedroom and I read them sections of this mm -hmm. and again the Sunday before the election when we all thought yeah. things were headed a different direction yeah. right yeah so it became all the more kind of poignant afterwards yeah also of course thinking about Jane Addams perspective on antagonism yeah. and how poisonous it is yep right yep so these were the three sections I think that I read then The Greeks say a mind with ideas is like a woman giving birth. Adams neither birthed children nor married a man. Hull House was not the marriage and motherhood Mitchell prescribed, but it was a cure for Adams nonetheless. It could be argued a domestic cure at that. One vial contains the sounds of a bustling dining room and meaningful conversation. Another the hum of daycare programs and kindergarten classes. At Hull House, there was too much to do, no time to be made sick. Sweatshop laborers need rest. Children need clean milk. How could one not protect a child, any child, from disease and rotten meat? 
It is as natural as motherhood. Cholera and malnutrition are symptoms. Greed and corruption are contagions. Medicine is clean water and fresh vegetables free of city grime. A children's playground, air and light from a window. Was there any hope of health without them? Medicine is that day of rest after six solid days of work. A child's body unconstricted by hard labor. A factory free of toxic dust. Medicine is poetry and painting, Italian opera and Greek tragedies. Adams believed the patronizing pursuit of charity to be a hidden contagion all its own. Medicine is the meaningful work found in a mutual exchange between people. Adams' immigrant neighbors had been international travelers. How many of them had travel medicine kits? How to live in a body deemed weak or dirty or doomed? What to do with a baseless prophecy disguised as prognosis? When confronted with your alleged mental, moral, and physical inferiority, the heart can sink. And so here's a second section, page 53. Pills are missiles launched by the tongue. During World War I, in front of a large audience at Carnegie Hall, Adams said that in practically every country she had visited, she had heard a certain type of soldier say that it had been difficult for him to make the bayonet charge unless he had been stimulated, be it ether or absinthe or rum. The brutality of war begins with the I and the U. Antagonism smiles there between the two, convincing us that there is no in-between. There is no table with two chairs, only here and there, bayonets and bombs. Words can be missiles, too. Adams was attacked for her pacifism by the press and old friends alike. Even President Roosevelt had his shot. Adams, suddenly, to find every public utterance willfully misconstrued, every attempt at normal relationship repudiated, one must react in a baffled suppression, which is health-destroying. A scapegoat, that is what Adams had become, what the ancient Greeks termed a pharmakos, one blamed and banished in order to fortify national authority. Adams knew their antagonism for what it was, a poison. Adams, I fell ill with a serious attack of pleuropneumonia, which was the beginning of three years of semi-invalidism. During weeks of feverish discomfort, I experienced a bald sense of social opprobrium and widespread misunderstanding, which brought me very near to self-pity, perhaps the lowest pit into which human nature can sink. She was to travel to Europe on Henry Ford's peace ship in 1915 in order to negotiate an end to the war, but instead she lay in a hospital bed in Chicago, her travel medicine kit at rest. Like a soldier in battle, the patient endures, the bed a trench, the fever a blast. Battling depression, battling disease. If we were to relinquish the antagonism and befriend our illness, would that be the same as surrender? Adams, the large number of deaths among the older pacifists in all the warring nations can probably be traced in some measure to the peculiar strain which such maladjustment implies. More than the normal amount of nervous energy must be consumed in holding one's own in a hostile world. 
Did Adams know that the words agony and antagonism were derived from the same Greek root? Adams remained in her hospital bed because of a surgery for tuberculosis of the kidney and missed the 1916 neutral conference in Stockholm. Adams, it is useless to speculate on what might have occurred at various times, but for our physical limitations. We must perforce accommodate ourselves to them, and it is never easy, although I had had the training which comes to a child with spinal disease, as it was called in my youth. When the body is confined to bed, the mind still travels. We are complicated organisms comprised of organs and hopes, bones and ambitions, blood and disappointments. Adams. Indeed, the pacifist in wartime faces two dangers. Strangely enough, he finds it possible to travel from the mire of self-pity straight to the barren hills of self-righteousness and to hate himself equally in both places. Um, and then just a section from the very end, starting on page 73. How to be at peace with one's warring nation. How to be at peace with one's failing body. Adams, we must learn to trust our democracy, giant-like and threatening as it may appear in its uncouth strength and untried application. Before surgery to remove an ovarian mass in 1931, Adams wrote Hull House founder, co-founder Ellen Gates Starr about financial arrangements for Starr's pension fund. The letter ends, Naturally, I am planning to come back from the hospital, and then everything will go along as usual, but I am writing this in case I do not come back. Adams was recovering from that surgery in a hospital bed in Baltimore when the Nobel Committee officially announced her prize. Even though she was eight years younger than Adams, Mary Rose Smith died first. Adams, I suppose I could have willed my heart to stop beating, and I longed to relax into doing that, but the thought of what she had been to me for so long kept me from being cowardly. The deep love of another being makes us human and therefore interdependent. Reciprocity is our remedy. A body and mind makes us human too. Best to keep courage patience, and equanimity close at hand. The dosages of the active ingredients in the brown and black pills are found to be appropriate. However, it is impossible to know the rate of decomposition. If a written doctor's prescription were to be found in the museum archives, it would be a prescription that had never been filled. Whatever sample pills remain following analysis will be returned to their respective vials. So, yeah, and I guess we didn't talk about the fact that Mary Rose Smith um, was Adam's long-term um, partner uh, for whom she referred to as her spouse. Um, and they were, uh, there's some beautiful pictures of them as young women and as old women um, at the museum that are really, really touching. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as everyone has told me as I've been researching this, uh, there's just an overabundance of material. Yeah. Um, and I'm so thankful that the museum exists to attract people like you to, you know, so eloquently uh, share it to a broader audience. But uh, yeah, so I, I hope we can just wrap up with one more uh, topic, which sure. is... Um, 
as you're talking about medicine, medicine poison, you know, mm-hmm. strychnine having both uses, right. um, you know, travels the same, and uh, your rhetorical effort to make people rethink the immigrant experience is exactly what this podcast is about. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope. If there happen to be any new listeners that are fans of Jane Addams, that they'll go back and find the uh, the refugee stories mm-hmm. um, right. in the catalog. And my idea was to put those stories side by side, and anyone who listens through has to compare them inevitably. Yeah. Um, because travel is always hard for the rich and the poor, for those who want to do it and those who don't. Right. But uh, some of us do carry kits that we can afford <laughs> to make it uh, gentler. But in the end, I do think travel has the same effect on people, which is a good effect mm. in the end. And I, I, I'm possessed with this idea that I have picked up from Jane that immigrants have really gained so much, mm-hmm. <laughs> so much that those of us who may not have traveled under, under those circumstances can unlock if we, if we approach, if we're open to that, mm-hmm. you know, there's such a benefit. So I'm just throwing that yeah. out there. Any thoughts? Yeah. Well, what I really appreciate about what you said is that, um, that that immigrant experience, um, which again is as varied as the world. I mean, right? Mm-hmm. It's so varied, um, but that there's a real richness. There's something to be gained from really listening to people's stories mm-hmm. and um, understanding the situations and the circumstances in which they left and arrived, and um, the experience of that of that leaving and arriving and I've been so moved by um, stories that I've heard in your podcast on the radio of what people have endured and just uh, it's amazing what what people endure and I see that as very related to um, that sharing of story and that listening um, seems to me to be something that Jane Addams was really committed to in terms of that idea of mutual exchange um, which was a radical idea in her day. Mm. That idea that these, you know, basically middle class, upper middle class, white women could gain something by yeah. learning from these immigrants yeah. and, and their traditions and their stories um, and creating this kind of mutual sympathetic um, situation. Um, it was very radical in her day, and unfortunately, I'm thinking that it feels with what's going on in this country and what's going on in Europe in terms of the rise of a kind of fascist right, anti-immigrant political system, um, that it's going to be radical now, yeah. right? Of what it really means to listen to people's situations and to have uh, sympathy um, for what they've experienced and the hardship that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a connection I see between 
what you're saying um, and what the importance of the story of immigrant experience mm -hmm. and what I see um, happening in Adams. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a lot to learn from the kind of uh, incredible generosity of spirit um, that one can witness among certain um, refugee populations. Mm -hmm. um, and boy, we need to, you know, there are many people, particularly in this country, in the U.S., that could learn a lot mm -hmm. from them. Absolutely. Yeah. Beautifully said. So the, I, I just have to end with the question I always end with. <laughs> and you protested that you may not have anything yeah. in, this, in this regard, but uh, everybody always does and then tells just the most amazing stories. So what's your best travel story? Oh, boy. <laughs> travel story and I just want to throw out there if it's okay uh, your family comes from Greece right my family comes from Germany uh -huh. and Scotland uh-huh I mean what we've been talking about listening to the immigrant experience is so important for us right. Americans <laughs> totally totally yeah I'm trying to think best travel experience any bullfights? No bullfights, thank God. I couldn't do that. Or I really couldn't do that. Oh, I did, I did have an amazing, I have an experience that really stuck with me. I lived in Greece, um, 1986 87, um, when I was in college for a year. And uh, I was spending time in this small village. Um, by the sea, and I was working on a thesis. I was doing an undergrad thesis on Greek food and um, food rituals, kind of e eating and cooking in Greek in modern Greek culture. And I had met this couple in the village that were herders that made cheese, and um, I'd heard they'd made cheese and yogurt. And I said, "Oh, I'd really like to." watch you um, make cheese and yogurt. And then they, they kind of pointed and they said, well, walk up the hill when the sun comes up at sunrise. I was like, that hill? Yeah, that hill, walk up the hill at sunrise. So I you know, walk, woke myself up just at sunrise and started walking up the hill. And I found the shepherd, um, the man, and um, he said, oh, we're done. We're done making cheese and yogurt for the morning. Um, but I need to slaughter this lamb. And so this is, this is my bullfight, maybe. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, that's not what I signed up for, but here I am on the side of a mountain as the sun is rising with this man with his knife and his lamb. And so then I, I watched this man slaughter this lamb. And it was so like in its own strange way this really beautiful experience um very peaceful um and watching him hang the lamb by the lamb's feet in the tree and kind of um slowly take the skin off with the knife and just felt like just the amount of skill the 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 skill the this quickness with which he slit the lamb's throat and then 
and then prepared, um, you know, removed the skin in one piece. I mean, it was just all kind of amazing to watch. So, I mean, it's still it kind of is this dream. Um, like, did I really see that? You know, because of the quality of the light and um, it was very cold. Uh, but it was a remarkable experience. And I think it's the only time that I've seen a slaughter in person. Um, but that, that experience is really, yes, that was, a, that was a remarkable experience. Thank you there so you much You're for so welcome. everything. Um, thank you for speaking English. I say that to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I can't thank Terry Capsalis enough for sharing her book, for reading passages, for spending so much time talking about Jane with me, for bringing such a vivid story to life. I grew up just outside Chicago. I took Whole House for granted. I thought I understood everything there was to understand after one sentence in my high school history textbook. But the world is a vastly richer place than I ever knew in high school. One way to access that wealth is through kiva.org, K-I-V-A dot O-R-G. So as you know, if you've been listening, this is a way to lend money to small business owners in other countries around the world where capital is hard to get. So I'm looking in my email. I was just paid back $3.57 on a loan that I made to a group in Ghana, the Moko Sane, Moke Sane group. And so that's good news. So in my account total I have $23 that have been paid back and I'm going to relend it right now. I'm looking at the website. I see a group in Rwanda. I've already lent to Rwandans. So I'm going to choose Guillermina Concepcion in Ecuador. She only has $25 to go on her $1,000 loan to buy rice, meat, fish, and other ingredients. I'm going to click that right now. And the cool thing is, maybe I can meet her in a few months when I go to Ecuador. So you can join too. Go to kiva.org, K-I-V-A dot O-R-G, and you can join the Observer Effect team. And together we can knit the world closer together like Jane. Endless thanks to the staff of Hull House for their slow museum and for assisting with the production of this episode. You can buy Terry's book online, Jane Addams' Travel Medicine Kit, at the Whole House Museum website. We'll include a link on our website and in the info for this episode on iTunes. Or better yet, go to Whole House on Halstead Street in Chicago, or any of the many museums around the world that preserve the stories that inspire Concentrate on what most deserves your attention. To be everywhere is to be nowhere. <laughs>